Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 3. Repression. I have done that, says my memory. I cannot have done that, says my pride, and remains adamant. At last, memory yields. This short parable by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche encapsulates what is understood as repression, at least in common usage. According to this understanding, it is a kind of motivated forgetting, Something which one does not want to be reminded about is erased from memory, so as to avoid a guilty conscience or to maintain a certain image of oneself. No, I am not someone who would do something like that. Our memory is corruptible, namely through our wishes and feelings. The more emotionally charged an issue is, the more unreliable the memory. Say, when the question of who has lent money to whom and how much, and whether it has in fact been paid back already. Or, to take up a topic of conflict in relationships, who has done more housework in the last week? Did I really promise to empty the dishwasher every morning? I don't remember that. Or the tendency to forget certain unpleasant appointments or one thinks of certain revisions and omissions that take place when past events are discussed, for example when parents talk about delicate moments in past family life, or don't talk. That's just how you were. Why did you have so many conflicts when you were going through puberty? Well, you had a friend who had a pretty bad influence on you, and you always went along with it. But I can't remember exactly. And, well, oh, look at how nice the weather is outside right now. A sentence that many therapists have heard a lot at the beginning of therapy is, I don't know why I feel so bad, but my family history is not the reason. Everything is great there. Which does not exclude the possibility that a few hours later, the patient may in fact recount very different aspects of their childhood and their relationship with their parents. Nevertheless, it is questionable whether it is correct to speak of repression here. Rather, a lot of times it is more likely a matter of the patient's fear at the beginning of therapy, say, due to the expectation that the therapist would immediately trace everything back to the childhood and start sorting through the family history marking it with a red pen, or because of a feeling of embarrassment and shame, which indeed is also quite understandable with a stranger. Repression is one of those terms that has made its way out of psychoanalytic theory and into our everyday language. On the way, however, its meaning has become quite blurry. At times, the word repression is used in everyday life in a completely different way than in psychoanalysis. The term sometimes also dominates the popular understanding of what psychoanalysis is, 
and how psychoanalysts proceed in their treatment. For example, in the assumption that psychoanalysts would explain any discrepancy between a patient's account and psychoanalytic theory as a matter of repression. According to the motto, What? You can't remember that as a young child you wanted to marry your mother and murder your father? You must have repressed that. Which certainly has nothing to do with actually dealing with repression in therapy. But what is the psychoanalytic understanding of repression? And what role does it play in therapy? We can illustrate it with the following example. Shortly after the birth of her child, a mother is abandoned by her partner. During this time, the mother isn't doing well emotionally and can hardly be there for her child during these early stages. Sometimes his crying is just too much for her, so she goes out of the room, leaving the baby alone a while, which causes her terrible feelings of guilt. As a result, the child develops a feeding disorder, no longer eats properly, and the mother goes to a counselling centre, where she receives assistance in feeding the child. Over time, the mother feels better and can take good care of her child. Decades later, her child is now an adult, and one day, conversation turns to early childhood. Be it in therapy or because the now grown-up child asks, what was that like for you back then, after Dad left? Or, I found a letter in my files from a nutritional counselling centre that we apparently visited when I was still very young. Do you still remember why? The question strikes a nerve. It could be that the mother still remembers the whole situation very vividly, and also still remembers how difficult the time was for everyone involved. Just thinking about it brings tears to her eyes. And perhaps she can, with anguish, tell her child about it. But also with understanding for the situation at the time. An important moment in the relationship between mother and her grown child. But perhaps the topic is so unpleasant for her, touches on so many feelings of guilt, which the mother cannot talk about that she answers, Oh, well, we only took a look at that counselling once, because I wanted to know if we were doing everything right. But if the mother does in fact still remember what really happened, this would not be a case of repression. On this point, she simply avoids talking about a subject that is difficult to stomach, does not quite say what she really knows or feels. That means she denies the reality to a certain extent, for reasons that are quite understandable. It is something else if the mother really has no precise memory of what happened. Not that all memories from this time have been erased, but why at that time she went to counselling with her child is something she no longer really knows. Something stirs the memory but it is not quite tangible for the mother. Nor does she have any particular feelings that she connects with the words nutritional counselling 
And so she answers honestly, I don't know anymore. Completely forgetting would, in the psychoanalytical sense, mean complete repression. Both the guilt-laden memory and the feelings of guilt have disappeared, are no longer consciously available. But in most cases, the events are not completely eradicated from memory, but rather are reshaped in memory in certain ways. Certain parts of the story might be missing, say, as in, that was a stressful time and you missed your pa after he left us. You were not doing so well. That's why you weren't eating and we went to counselling. What was said is not wrong, but there is a specific part missing in the story, namely that the mother also wasn't doing well, not to mention all the consequences for the child. Sometimes what follows from this kind of fragmentary memory is an account that is not entirely understandable or coherent to the listener. In this case, the grown child. There are many individual episodes or anecdotes, but they do not add up to a coherent whole. But there is also the possibility that what happened is reported in its entirety, but not with the emotional relevance that it once had for those involved. For example, I was very preoccupied with the separation at the time. Sometimes I had to be on my own and left you alone in the room. But you didn't notice any of it then. You were still so small. You thought it was nice. You liked to be on your own and would simply gaze out the window a bit. So here it is, the emotional drama of the situation that is missing from the memory, as if everything had not been so bad after all. We already heard in episode two that many of the feelings that persons have difficulty observing in themselves end up in other people. In therapy, one speaks of so-called countertransference. In this example, a typical countertransference feeling would be that whoever the mother is talking to would feel a strong pressure to agree with the mother, to absolve her. Yes, that was certainly not so bad. The child wasn't aware of that yet. Something from those unbearable feelings resonates with the other person, and they have the impulse to protect the mother, to not make her feel too bad. Therapists, too, know this urge to sanction the patient's defence, thus absolving them, for surely they do not want to plunge their patients into destructive feelings of guilt. On these points, there is indeed great danger in agreeing with the patient's denial or repression, in removing the unpleasant feeling of guilt that arose in the situation. But for someone constantly haunted by feelings of guilt, this is ultimately not very helpful and only provides short-term relief. Needless to say, therapy is not about persuading patients of any memories or occurrences. This has nothing to do with a professional approach. Neither does insinuating to patients theories about birth trauma or the Oedipus complex, a caricature of therapeutic work. 
And incidentally, these are also concepts that are contentious in psychoanalysis, and which have changed a lot since Freud's time. The therapist cannot know what the patient's history was really like, and, in the end, that is also not at all what it's about. For even if one could establish with certainty what truly happened, it would still say nothing about how a person experienced it subjectively, and what it means to them in later life. A therapy is not a fact-finding mission, and, moreover, not a court of law, in which the patient's guilt is sought, even if this is what is sometimes feared at the beginning of therapy. Crucial for therapy is creating room for discussion and reflection, in which even incidents that are very difficult to bear find space, where that which weighs on the patient's mind can be addressed. This usually involves emotional understanding. Say, if the mother from our example were in therapy, what a desperate situation she was in, being abandoned by her partner shortly after the birth, how alone she must have felt, and how much she struggled to be there for the child, what terrible feelings of guilt it caused her to not have been capable in every way to perhaps the unbearable feeling of just wanting to give the child away. Coming to grips with such painful parts of one's own history also involves recognising, and at last mourning, what happened. A part of which is also that the child was left alone. Indeed, maybe it wasn't all so harmless after all. Often enough, however... People shoulder nearly all feelings of guilt alone, in utterly unrealistic ways, not even developing, as in our example, genuine anger towards the person who contributed significantly to the difficult situation, the ex-partner, perhaps even agreeing with him unconsciously, along the lines of, someone like me can only be left. Ultimately, the mother can only release herself from the nightmare of bad conscience and internalise a nuanced image of her story if she comes into contact with her feelings and develops an understanding for herself. To understand everything does not mean thereby to forgive everything. But ultimately, there is neither forgiveness nor reconciliation, even reconciliation with oneself, without understanding. Incidentally, dialogue with one's parents is thereby often a challenging situation. Children sense how much it grieves their parents to speak about such affairs. They do not want to inflict pain on their parents, make them feel guilty, and perhaps immediately try to take the pressure off their parents. Oh, that was not bad at all for me back then. You did everything right. Which, from their side, also necessitates an act of denial or even repression. As for the concept of repression in psychoanalysis, it is important that it not only addresses the remembering of facts, but also the feelings associated with them, psychoanalytically 
one only speaks of a conscious memory, that means not repressed, once both the past and the feelings about it are accessible. One can also see from the example of the mother that repression is a process that is quite ordinary and helpful. It is, in fact, even a process necessary for survival. It would be a heavy burden on the mother if she had to go through life the whole time with the burning feeling of her supposed guilt. So long as she cannot find another way to deal with her story internally, repression will be the best solution to remain functional. Repression has a protective function, which, incidentally, first must also be acknowledged and understood in therapy. In fact, it is the case with many mental illnesses that repression becomes fragile and the emotional meaning of certain events cannot just be shoved away, but instead permanently haunts the soul and at night, for instance, through the torment of endless deliberation, robs one of sleep. The repression in our example is by no means merely a gradual blurring and smudging of memory, but is instead a functional restructuring. Even without a mental illness, however, this memory can, in some moments, return with all its emotional agony, suddenly thrusting a person into an inferno of memory, as if no time had passed at all. In fact, the repressed incident never really disappears, but instead is just sort of pushed completely below the threshold of consciousness, where it must be permanently kept. Here is where the exertion of psychological effort becomes necessary. Freud spoke of an expenditure of psychological energy, like an electric fence that must be constantly kept under current to keep the wild bulls of our unconscious and our past caged up. According to the psychoanalytical conception, the psyche does not forget anything of emotional importance. It only obstructs the memory and the feelings connected with it, such that we can get on well with it. This is why repression is the architect of the psyche a way of structuring our inner world so that we can live in it. However, when remodelling work is carried out on our mental architecture, like in times of great stress or change, or in a therapy, the ostensible past often becomes tangibly present. Issues that in fact appeared to have been settled long ago reappear in our experience. Of course, not only are those far-removed events in our lives subject to repression, but any kind of incident, even very ordinary ones in which the emotional relevance is softened to the effect of, it's not all so bad, I didn't mind anyway, I didn't need it. It is especially those patients who speak about difficult incidents in an emotionally distanced way that often have a very sensitive, vulnerable and wounded side behind that wall of repression. If you like, a distraught child within. And it takes a lot of coercion against oneself to not hear its cries, 
sometimes by putting one's own emotional life on hold entirely, at the expense of one's own vitality. There then remains hardly any mental leeway left to enjoy life, or, if it comes to the development of an illness, even to cope with everyday life. One could say, without massive repression, the person can no longer maintain his or herself psychologically. And yet the effort involved in the repression is so high that it makes day-to-day living almost impossible. The person needs help to get out of this dilemma. Therapeutic work here does not mean drawing up a suitable account of the patient's life story, which patients often already know themselves. Therapy is not only about the search for lost memories, but rather also the search for lost feelings. That means, in this case, becoming aware of one's own unheard cries, and to experience that this wounded child is not alone, but rather is being heard, and that those feelings are neither contemptible nor worthless, but perhaps the most precious thing, a person within. In this way, the pain may, over the course of time, become bearable, and emotional life can spring back to life once more. But in many cases, this involves a very lengthy and tedious therapeutic process. Here, the object of the therapy is by no means only the past and one's life history. Most of the time, it is in fact largely about the patient's current life, and discussing the emotional significance of its many everyday events. The traces of lost feelings are frequently found in dealing with feelings in general, in all the everyday details, relationships, thoughts, and, not least, in the way the therapeutic relationship develops, but also in fantasies and dreams, in which a world of feelings frequently becomes apparent that has little to do with an apparently sober and rational relationship to the outside world. In many therapeutic processes, the thawing of the ice announces itself in dreams, long before it can be felt in the here and now. Once again, special caution and an adequate therapeutic approach is furthermore necessary when dealing with traumatisation which will be considered in individual episodes. So, that which we have repressed has not really disappeared at all. In our unconscious, the sentence, time heals all wounds, has no validity. And in our waking life, incidentally, this sentence is also only correct if during that time we face up to what happened, not just let the clock hand tick. The clock hand describes a circle, and returns exactly to the point from which it started. And this may well, indeed, be an apt image of repression. Freud, at his time, already spoke of, and this has become a well-known saying, the return of the repressed. What we have repressed must be repeated, as it were, precisely because we have not overcome it. 
the repressed follows us like an unseen companion and determines some aspects of our lives. Say, when we try in our career to compensate for a sad family history, when we spend our whole lives striving for the affection and recognition of our internalised parents, or when we try to find in our partners our longed-for mother or father, or when we repeatedly stumble into particular relationship patterns, trouble with authority, fear of being abandoned, and much more. In our interpersonal relationships, but also in our cultural creations, our lapsus, our slips, our dreams, our humour, and in our psychological symptoms, we find the traces of what we have repressed and not least in society and history. Which is why it is simply remembering that can save us from the repetition of history, especially where it was traumatic. We have heard that this isn't just a matter of reconstructing the events in a protocol, or of erecting monuments or holding speeches on holidays. It is about bringing memory and feeling together searching for the living meaning of what happened and integrating it into our self-image. Those who believe the past can be dismissed because it lies behind us will, like a curse, encounter it on the threshold to the future. In the words of William Faulkner, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And in most cases, it is a painstaking process for the past to truly become the past. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.